Welcome back to the Red Dice Diaries. I'm your host, John, and today I'm going to be looking at Sandbox Generator by Atelier Clandestine. Apologies if I've got that name wrong or mispronounced it, but let's get straight into the book, shall we? Anyone who knows me or has seen some of my past videos will know that I'm a sucker for procedurally or randomly generated content. I've done a few videos about it in the past, and I'll probably talk about it in the future. But to boil down my love of it to a few simple points for this video. One, it helps time poor GMs. Two, it's useful when your players go off in unexpected directions and you've got nothing ready. Three, it can produce results or spark ideas you might otherwise have not had. Four, it's sometimes it's just fun to roll the dice and see what happens. So, in that spirit, we come to Sandbox Generator by Atelier Clandestine, a small family business run by Celine and Bernard from Belgium. Now, I've got to admit, it's not a company that I was overly familiar with before picking up this book, but I have since picked up a few of their other PDFs. And I'd heard a few people online mention the Sandbox Generator, so I decided to pick a copy up. According to the author in their introduction, the book describes a procedure to generate a pseudo-feudal world with a hint of magic. So let's break down the book and see how it goes, shall we? So after the introduction, we have hex maps. The chapter begins with discussing the basic idea of hex maps and kindly providing some simple usable templates. Although it does use two mile hexes, which whilst perfectly serviceable, is not a scale I've generally seen used much in other OSR products that I've got, with authors normally preferring one mile hexes for local scale and six to 12 mile hexes for more zoomed out maps. The author is at pains to point out that this book is taking inspiration from the European Middle Ages and therefore most of the charts and biomes are designed with that in mind. I think this is both a good and bad thing. Good because the book isn't trying to be all things to all men, so to speak, and is focused on delivering the best experience for its own particular niche. Bad because you'll have to put in some work if you want to adapt it for deserts or tropical environments. To be honest, I don't see this as too much of a sticking point since the tables could quite easily be adapted. The process for determining the biome dominant terrain of a particular two mile hex is fairly easy. You roll on one chart for the central hex, then you roll on a second chart for the following hexes, expanding outwards in a snowflake pattern until you have the desired number of hexes. A D10 roll of a one to five on the second chart means that you've got the same terrain as the previous hex, and this means you're likely to get large swathes of particular types of terrain, which makes sense, but does not rule out you getting patches of different terrain. The author recommends creating an area of 19 hexes as your initial starting campaign, and then, if you need more, generating another 19 hex patch and attaching it to the first. This makes sense as it will take some time to explore a 19 hex area, although the author does offer some alternatives for expanding the area. Next, we get five 2D6 encounter charts. These seem a little like a space filler and aren't particularly comprehensive, but they're a nice inclusion and it gives the prospective GM a good starting point to customize and make them their own. Following on from this, the chapter details features that you might find in a hex. The author describing features as the prominent things that can be found inside the hexes. As you might expect, these are determined randomly by rolling on a couple of tables, although the author recommends that for a traditional campaign, in this case defined as first going into a dungeon, then exploring the wilderness at high levels, the first hex should contain a village and the second one a dungeon. 
I can see the logic of this since it allows your player characters a safe haven they can retreat to between adventures and a nearby perilous dungeon site to explore. The other hexes will contain a mixture of landmarks, settlements, lairs and dungeons. And there is an additional table to determine the size of settlements. And these include hamlets, villages, cities, castles, towers and abbeys. We then move on to an area of the book that I found particularly interesting, a discussion on factions and how they relate to each other. The author provides guidance for how many hexes the various features, settlements, dungeons, etc. exert influence over. If two or more factions share influence over certain hexes, then they are contested and there's a table to determine if they're at war, at peace, have a trade agreement and such like. There are also a couple of small tables to determine if an event is ongoing, going to occur with a particular faction. Again, I think this would be a good starting point, but would quickly need expansion or elaboration by a GM. I love the idea of the faction interplay, but the only difficulty I can see it causing is that including this information on the initial hex map might make it very cluttered. Although I suppose you could colour code or outline the various hexes without too much trouble. Even the author uses a separate version of the hex map to show the factions to save confusion. It's hardly an insurmountable obstacle though, and I think that for the potential benefits and interest that faction play might add to your games, the little bit of extra bookkeeping and organisation is probably worth it. We get a small 2D6 table for random wilderness encounters. I'm not sure how these relate to the random biome encounter charts from earlier, since they seem to perform much the same function, save that in these charts they include entries for encountering members of a particular faction. We then round off with a short example of a created hex map, which I like since it shows how the author thinks this information should be used. Next, we move on to landmarks. And if you roll the landmark for some of your hexes in the previous chapter, now's when you find out how to determine more details about them. We get a table to determine whether the landmark is natural, artificial or magical, along with separate subtables to determine the precise nature of the three different types of landmarks. We also get a small table to determine if there are any hazards and treasures in the landmark area. There's a good spread of possible results here. For each type of landmark, we get six subtables, each with 10 possible results, giving you a potential of 60 different results per category. That's 180 in total. Next, we get some table for hazards and even a table to determine what might be learned in an otherwise empty hacks. This is a great inclusion in my opinion since even empty hexes should not seem just boring and dull. They might not have any monsters or dungeons in them but they're still part of a fantasy world. Atelier's tables here do a solid job in providing both ideas about what the PCs might learn and how they could learn it. And again we round off the chapter with a nice example. Next we move on to settlements, and they've always been a huge part of D&D, whether simply as places to rest, recuperate and buy equipment between dungeon adventures, or as fully fledged places of adventure themselves. Sandbox Generated definitely seems to lean more towards the former idea, although there is plenty of detail provided here for enterprising GMs to expand settlements, take on more of a central role in their games should they wish to do so. We get a great series of tables for providing a variety of different names and ways of constructing names and then a breakdown of the major types of settlement along with tables for determining both their layout styles and the types of buildings they have. For example, let's construct a hamlet using the tables from the book. Firstly, I rolled a d30 on the table to determine how the name of the hamlet is made up. I got an 18 which tells me I should use subtable d and put sub on the end of it. 
rolling on subtable D gets me a 12 and the hamlet of Loisby is born. I roll a D12 on to determine the main building in the hamlet. On this occasion, I get a 10, which indicates that the main building is a toll. Interesting, so presumably the hamlet is built on a road, maybe a bridge, and they collect money from travellers hoping to use it. I roll a D3 for the shape of the hamlet, and I get a 2, which tells me it has a round shape with a circular track surrounded by buildings. In light of this, I start thinking maybe the toll isn't for a road, perhaps it's to visit a shrine or something similar that could be in this central area. Next, I roll a 2d6 for the position of the locals. Getting a 4, the table tells me they are hostile. And lastly, I roll a 2 on the secret table to determine that the people of the hamlet are in fact cultists. Already I'm starting to imagine Loisby as a hamlet built around a goodly shrine that has embraced dark gods and is now seeking to pervert the energies of the shrine to their own fell purposes. Great stuff for just a couple of minutes of rolling on tables. The subsection on creating cities by necessity is due to their size focuses less on the overall layout and more on the amount of people, occupations and characteristics of the city. It makes sense since you could write a whole book, and many people have, to describe a single city. Unwisely, I think the authors recognise that that was beyond the scope of this book. They do still give you some excellent tables for generating points of interest, special locations, buildings, notable NPCs and such like. Very much in the style of older D&D, castles on the other hand are imagined as places populated by a local lord and his retinue who might either ally with or challenge the player characters as they explore the map. We get some tables for determining the name of the castle, the extent and style of fortifications, the disposition of the people within and possible events. The section on towers is very similar, save that it imagines towers as being populated by wizards engaged in their studies. It gives us the normal bunch of tables and has a lovely method for determining a simple tower layout where you establish the number of levels above and below ground and then you roll for their contents, yielding everything from mines to aviaries depending on where you are in the tower. Abbeys are where clerics and religious types dwell, and these tables go more into the types of activities, farming, candle making, etc., that go on there, along with what healing is available and any religious relics that might be located there. All the sort of stuff you'd want to know in an old school D&D game. My personal favourites are the events and history tables, which give you an idea of where the Abbey came from and what is potentially going to happen in the future. Next, we move on to lairs, and these are basically where the monsters live in the wilderness, as the author says, and then asks us to roll on the appropriate biome encounter table to determine what sort of creature lives in a lair. You then roll for the number of such creatures and the total amount of treasure possessed by them. The author gives us an optional method of determining the percentage amount of creatures that are in the lair and where the rest might be wandering around nearby on the map. I like this idea because it seems more evocative to me to realise that the goblins menacing travellers are actually coming from somewhere rather than just having a cavern of little green creatures or just sat there biding their time waiting for the heroes to come along and slaughter them. We get guidelines for determining a very simple room layout for the lairs and I think this simple view is fine. We're not talking about a dungeon after all for prolonged delving, we're just talking about a lair. The number of creatures is then distributed throughout the lair according to the percentages listed on the layout chart. 
Now we get into the real meat of the book. As the author themselves implied at the start of the book, exploring dungeons is a huge part of old school D&D. And so this is a session I was really expecting to knock it out of the park, and I was not disappointed. The author begins by describing a dungeon, subscribing to the mythical underworld style of dungeon, where the very environment is naturally antagonistic to the heroes, and natural laws often don't behave as they should. While using this style of dungeon is a matter of personal taste, some people like the dungeons to be logical and make sense as much as they can. I like that the author has nailed their colours to the mast early on in the chapter. We don't only get advice on creating a single dungeon, but also on how to link them, forming one or more mega dungeons. This was an unexpected but welcome inclusion, and the author provides a cross-section template to record the number of levels of different dungeons and how they link up with each other. We also get a bevy of tables to determine the dungeon name, the number of levels, the number of rooms per level, factions in the dungeon, and the actual layout and structure of the dungeon itself. These tables are excellent, and whilst it might take a while to generate a whole multi-level dungeon using this table, and that's just due to the sheer number of options, there's nothing to stop you pulling on one or two tables to enliven existing dungeons or just generating them between games. For the trap, empty and special room types, we get a 1D100 table for each of them to determine elements of interest or deadly peril that are present. And I think providing 100 scenery elements for empty rooms is a stroke of genius, something to give the players more options than simply saying, oh, it's empty, let's move on to the next room. And as you can see here, all of these options get an expansive treatment in the book. The next chapter is a grab bag of assorted different random tables, including coats of arms, criminal organizations, dragons, guilds, houses, NPCs, taverns, and wizards. Although some of these tables fit in better with the preceding content than others, and there are a couple of tables I don't see myself using as much as others, the coat of arms table, for instance, whilst perfectly serviceable, will still involve me drawing the final result myself, whereas there are generators online that can just produce that final image. And that's not to throw shade on the table, though. If you don't have or need the online generators, then the coat of arms table will certainly provide some guidance for a GM, and all of the other tables are very interesting and would provide useful fodder for your game. Following on from this chapter, we next get a short chapter that deals with adventures at the sea. And it provides a method for adding seas and ocean to sandboxes. Essentially, it involves a similar method for determining the contents of hexes. Although in this case, the contents are either nothing, i.e. sea, landmarks or islands. The landmarks have a noticeably nautical theme, such as coral reefs and fog banks, whilst the islands vary from atolls to jungles, rocky and volcanic. And we round off with a short example and a couple of sea and island encounter charts. And then we finally have some templates and the credits in the book. So there we are. So what do we think about the sandbox generator? by Atelier Clandestine. Well, I think it's an excellent book and an extremely useful resource for gems looking to run a sandbox 
or generate procedurally generated content for an old school D&D style game. The layout of the book is clean and the artwork is done in a cartoony style that really complements the accompanying text and definitely reminds me of several old RPG products that I've seen. If you're looking to start a hex crawl in a pseudo feudal environment, and let's face it, why wouldn't you be? Or you're willing to put in a bit of work adapting some of the tables, I highly recommend the Sandbox Generator. The Sandbox Generator can be purchased on DriveThruRPG. It's $12 for the PDF, $18 for softcover, or $24 for the hardcover. I've got the hardcover here. I'll put links in the description down below. I personally got the hardcover version, as I say, which comes with the PDF at no extra charge. And I'm very happy with the production standard of the digest size book. So there you go. If you're looking for some procedurally generated content for an old school style D&D game, I highly recommend you give this a look. So that's it for this review. I hope you've enjoyed the video. If you have, please like, share, subscribe, and all of that good stuff that YouTubers ask you to do on the regular basis. And hopefully we'll see you again for the next video. So until we see you again, take care, stay safe, and whatever you're playing, have fun.